This evening I want to explore with you the theme of a skillful effort in our samadhi practice. And as we've done before, I want to uh, invite you uh, during the talk to stay with your practice and to, to stay, with, uh, stay with the breath wherever you're following the breath. That, uh, that continuity is really one of the central qualities of our practice. And I can remember going to uh, samadhi retreats and really enjoying the fact that I could actually stay with the practice and listen at the same time. Yeah. And uh, so that's the, that's the encouragement, you know, that we want to keep this going, that uh, the talk isn't the break. <laughs> or the entertainment after a hard day. <laughs> so I want to focus particularly on the balance that we've um, talked about a number of times, really continually, about what we might call proactive effort and more relaxed effort, or we could call it relaxation and ease and how those two can each be cultivated and how they eventually go together in a kind of, uh, in a kind of balance. So I'll start by saying just a little bit more about the nature of samadhi in general, a little bit more about how it appears in the uh, teachings of the Buddha, and then focus on uh, the nature of proactive effort, or this, the, the effort that's more of a doing, and it, talk about that generally, but then also give a lot of suggestions for how to practice, a lot coming out of my own experience. And my hope is in that, and in giving similarly an overview of the aspect of relaxation and ease, and a number of tips there, uh, my hope is that maybe one or two or three of them land with you. And they seem like possible adjustments to make to your practice. So I'll give a lot. Don't expect you to implement the, you know, 35 suggestions I'll, I'll give. Uh, and, you know, we have the recording and you can come back later for things. But I'd mostly just listen for what resonates and maybe that might... Um, respond to your practice as it is uh, right now. And in making these suggestions, I'll be talking a lot about my own experience and what I've heard from my own uh, teachers in samadhi. And so I just want to emphasize that the uh, other teachers may have different perspectives, may even have um, suggestions that are a little bit different so that these are coming out of my own experience. And I'll try to bring some of the suggestions for practice that I make into the instructions tomorrow morning as well. So a little bit of word, a little bit of attention to the word samadhi, which we haven't really um, 
looked at in terms of its etymology, which is helpful. Again, we, I prefer to use the word samadhi rather than even to use the word concentration because the connotations in English can sometimes uh, point towards a certain kind of control or over-efforting. So I like to use the word samadhi. And if we look at the etymology, we can, can get a sense uh, that it's a little bit different than the usual connotations of concentration. Uh, so the, the word sam, or the, the uh, part of the word samadhi, the S-A-M, is uh, related to English words like summary, that uh, Pali and Sanskrit are Indo-European languages, which means that there are a certain number of roots which are shared. And so, um, literally, uh, the, the prefix sam means together. And adi, different interpretations, but the main ones that I found was having something to do with directing or putting in place. So that the meaning of samadhi means something like to place together. It's similar to what we've talked about as collecting or, or gathering. And other people have used uh, translations like composure or steadying the mind and uh, Richard Shankman, who's written a very, very good book on samadhi, called Samadhi. <laughs> he, has a, he has a very nice definition. He says that uh, samadhi is unifying the mind in steady, undistracted awareness. Unifying the mind in steady, undistracted awareness. And one thing to know is that we're really developing and enhancing a natural capacity. That this is a natural capacity, not just for humans, but for uh, many species. I, I remember uh, sometimes here at Spirit Rock, there are herons. And I, I remember watch, once watching a heron just look at what I presumed was its intended lunch and be just so focused for quite a duration of time. Someone who, some being who had never done a samadhi retreat, very natural. <laughs> you know, and similarly, we know we know that quality of samadhi just from our ordinary activities. That we can be very focused. We have to do that for probably most of us in our work, and that we can do that. It's it's there, and sometimes we get into even very deep kinds of absorption. Maybe if we are musicians, or if we are artists or, or even uh, athletes, right? They have a phrase called playing in the zone, <laughs> which is just very deeply absorbed in the, in the activity. And I, I, wa I was reflecting on one of my own experiences where I, I think I most clearly, uh, at a fairly young age, uh, uh, discovered this natural quality of samadhi. I was um, one of the few times in college when I did what, you know, we called an all-nighter. And I found myself uh, working on an essay and getting so absorbed in it, having no sense of time for like four, five, six hours. Maybe you've had experiences like that. And staying up all night and coming out into the dawn and being in a tremendously altered state. Everything was just glistening and shining from that kind of absorption. And maybe we've each had experiences something 
uh, something like that. For, for the Buddha, I think, uh, again, samadhi is a kind of natural quality which can be enhanced and developed and which is really crucial for our practice, especially to help us have a base for seeing clearly. That's, that's really the core of it. It helps us to, mm, of course, not be distracted, to cut through a number of the forms of our conditioning and be able to be with experience, to, as it were, see experience, so to speak, without filters, increasingly, to see the nature of things. And that's really the purpose of samadhi. From the Buddha, there comes a time when one's mind becomes inwardly steadied, composed, unified, and concentrated. That samadhi is then calm and refined. It has attained to full tranquility and achieved mental unification. It is not maintained by strenuous suppression <coughs> of the defilements. In other words, at a certain point, as we develop the samadhi, it takes on a uh, more effortless quality. That's what we probably sometimes experience and that as samadhi develops, it does become more effortless, what we might call more automatic, with less of a sense of doing, less of a sense of a doer. And I'll come back to that. You know, the core of samadhi practice is just doing one thing over and over again. I, I love, there's a quotation that I love from the uh, philosopher Kierkegaard, where he says, Purity of heart is to will one thing. There's a certain, isn't, I mean, we don't always feel that. I mean, our practice has its ups and downs, of course. But sometimes you may feel that there's a certain uh, peace and even relief and beauty and uh, inspiration from just doing one thing. Our life is simplified. You know? We know that... Uh, we came from something more complex, right? And there's something very beautiful about that simplicity and just really letting ourselves be given, as it were, to the breath, to whatever we're focusing on. Um, my mother, uh, Bernice, some of you knew her. She used to like to meditate. And when we talked about meditation, she would say, only concentration practice. And so we would, I would say, okay, how about insight meditation or just concentration practice? And so we would do that and she would just try, want to stay with it. And she told me a story once that uh, um, when she, she was a, a pianist and she learned to uh, play piano at a pretty young age, like she was in a music school and uh, at about age seven, she was uh, about to have to perform, I think for the class, but for a group of people, maybe the parents, I don't know. And she said she was nervous and she went to the, um, she went to the uh, teacher and said, I'm nervous. And the teacher said, don't think about yourself. It's not about you. Just let yourself take, be taken over by the music. 
And she said, okay. <laughs> and she just did that. And she thought, when we were talking about concentration, she said, concentration practice is just like letting oneself be taken over by the music. So if that, if that inspires you, you can remember that at the beginning of the session. But it points to the way that, and we've talked sometimes, that our practice can really be um, sometimes almost devotional. That we can have this devotional, loving quality towards the breath. Just let me just keep coming back. Let me just keep coming back. One of the, um, one of the qualities of samadhi practice is that I've heard from... Um, people in touch with the research on samadhi practice is that at the level of the brain, samadhi can be learned so that we, over time, don't have to keep going back to square one. And I've certainly seen that in my own practice. So it's actually pretty good news, right? Stay with samadhi practice and over time, the base level gets higher. I think that requires a certain amount of staying with it. But that's certainly what I have found. That there, and again, the researchers say that samadhi can actually be learned in certain ways. The brain knows what to do. And it gets the cues and it, it, it knows something from previous learning. So we've mentioned that for the Buddha, samadhi was very central, appears on many of the lists, I think as Sally mentioned. Uh, and it's um, the last of the factors on the Eightfold Path. And I think just one or two points I wanted to make that I think are important is that uh, it's important that samadhi is related to the other factors of the Eightfold Path. And I think in particular, it's significant that it's related to mindfulness, it's related particularly to ethical factors there can be wrong, wrong samadhi. Obviously, we can uh, cultivate samadhi and use it for unethical purposes, right? And so it's set in the framework of the training, which involves all of these dimensions of practice. That's really it's important to remember, I think, because samadhi could be misused and is misused. A burglar who's trained in samadhi might do a better job. Right, so that's that's just that's an important point. Just a few more words that's come up sometimes in the one-on-ones. Again, why it's important. Essentially, stability is very crucial for our practice. Again, for us to see more clearly. It also can be very helpful uh, when we have distress or hindrances that when we have strong samadhi, we can actually sometimes use the samadhi to cut through the hindrance or the distressing thought, you know, when that's skillful. Sometimes it's skillful just to be with it, work with it, etc. But sometimes, you know, if you're a brain surgeon, in the middle of surgery, and you think of the the disagreement you had with your partner in the morning, samadhi is crucial. <laughs> right, so it can help in that way. It also, I think very significantly, 
gives us a sense, which I, I imagine we've all had, of a kind of, uh, of the power of inwardness and the deep satisfaction of just being with our own awareness, our own presence, our own being, and how deeply meaningful and satisfying that can be. And samadhi practice can be like that. It can, maybe you felt at times, certainly not all the time, but maybe you felt sometimes I wouldn't want to be doing anything else than being here and cultivating this quality. And sometimes just the, the beauty of that can, can be inspiring. And to have that sense of, uh, of the power of awareness and of the mind to be deeply, deeply satisfying. And of course, samadhi is necessary for liberation. Very clear from the Buddha. It's necessary to become free. And there are passages where the Buddha says, for someone to be liberated without samadhi, this is not possible. And the, our practice opens us up uh, we've mentioned some of them, but it's actually pretty interesting that when we follow samadhi practice, it opens us up. I, I am identifying four very significant ways when we continue with the samadhi. It leads to four kinds of openings. One of them uh, was mentioned, uh, I think this morning by Susie, that, that samadhi practice has the nature at times of being purifying, that and we know this generally from retreats, right? That we come on retreats and unresolved inner material, when it's ready, comes to the surface, right? And we have to work with it. And that, of course, happens in samadhi practice. So the first kind of opening is that we open to a certain kind of purification. We may also open to deeper absorption into the states that are called the jhanas, which we'll, I think we'll talk about later in the retreat. There's also a way as the samadhi practice deepens that we start opening up into um, seeing the nature of things more clearly. As samadhi deepens, I think Philip uh, referred to this, the solidity of the breath, the solidity of the object isn't there in the same way the object will tend to break up and we can see the, what we might call the constructed or sometimes we say empty nature of the object and of ourselves. And it can open, in other words, uh, samadhi practice can open up to deeper understanding of what we call emptiness, which I like to think about as the, the constructed or fabricated nature of experience, quite a deep level of seeing. And then lastly, Samadhi practice on its own can open up to a deep sense of awareness. It can open up as it gets quite deep to what we can call a pure kind of awareness. Sometimes we talk about pure awareness or non-dual awareness. Samadhi practice can open up like that. In one form of Tibetan Samadhi practice that I've done, they go straight from Samadhi practice to what they call the nature of mind or non-dual awareness, straight from samadhi practice, not, not typically done, 
but that's done in some in, in one school of samadhi practice. One of the main ways that we deepen is that we work with this balance of more proactive effort and relaxation. Again, we're repeating this message over and over again. And, uh, and it's, it's uh, paradoxical in, in certain ways. Um, it's sort of a balance, we might say, of active and receptive or doing and being. We could talk about it in different ways. So first I'll say a little bit about what I'm calling proactive effort. Then I'll talk some about relaxation. Then I'll talk about the balance. And all along the way, I'll give tips. Okay. So I think we know very clearly that a certain amount of doing is necessary in this practice, just to keep coming back. And in fact, the, the main way that the Buddha talked about skillful effort was in terms of more proactive effort. I think he talked at times about that more relaxed effort and the balance, and I'll come back to that. But the main, effort, the main uh, way of talking about effort was really about this, about this doing. Uh, and again, this is one of the factors of the Eightfold Path, the sixth factor. And the term in the uh, Pali is virya which uh, can also be translated sometimes as energy, typically translated as, as effort. And it's an interesting word because it's, um, again, it's an Indo-European word, and it's actually uh, similar to our word virile. And the actual etymology of virya, it has to do, literally, it has to, it's uh, the scholars I've consulted Virya actually literally means manliness or the state of a strong man. And the, the root in Indo-European languages is vir, V-I-R. I found it's the same root that we have in the word werewolf. <laughs> so, a piece of information offered <laughs> that probably hasn't been offered at any other Dharma talk. <laughs> But it's the, it's the V-I-R, it, it actually is the word for man. So it's interesting, isn't it? And we'll see, I, I think that they're actually in terms of this uh, balance of proactive and more relaxed effort, there are gender dimensions. It's pretty interesting, right? That the, the doing tends to be a little more gendered male and the relaxation a little more gendered, uh, what we call it, feminine, let's say, you know, again, social construction. So the, I'll say a little bit about the traditional teaching of, the, of what wise or skillful effort is in generally. I think, again, it's mostly around this development of proactive effort and very relevant for what we're doing. I think it also connects quite a bit with what Susie was talking about yesterday. There basically are four ways to practice skillful effort. And, um, the first, and I'll, I'll give the original one and then I'll you know, as it were, paraphrase it. The, uh, in the original formulation, in the translation, the first form of effort is called the non-arising of unarisen, 
unwholesome states. A little bit of a mouthful. And the second is the abandoning of arisen unwholesome states. The third is the arising of unarisen wholesome states. And the fourth is the maintenance of arisen wholesome states. Now, I was once working with this with a group of uh, students, and one of the people in my group said, oh, those are exactly the guidelines for good kayaking. <laughs> it comes down to number one, more or less means stay out of trouble. Number two, know what to do if you get in trouble. So number one, stay out of trouble. This is the non-arising of unwholesome, or we wouldn't say unskillful, basically meaning states not conducive to our practice, not conducive to freedom and liberation. That's what it means. Basically, try not to have those arise. So stay out of trouble. Number two, know what to do if you get in trouble. Know what to do if the... Uh, uh, unwholesome states or the unskillful states have ar uh, arisen. So that would mean know what to do if the... So first one would mean if you uh, don't go looking for trouble or you know, know when your mind is about to go somewhere which is going to land you in a hindrance, possibly a multiple hindrance attack. Right? We, know, we know where that might, how that might happen, right? You know what could... Oh, let's just go there one more time. Right, and so we want, we want to uh, refrain from that, right? And so, uh, and the second is know what to do, and we've talked about that, know how to work with the hindrances. Susie covered that a lot. And the third is the arising of unarisen wholesome states. That just means cultivate the good qualities, like cultivate vitaka, vichara, and so forth. And again, in, my, in the uh, kayaking understanding of skillful effort, it means... Uh, develop good habits, and the fourth is keep them going. That's a, hopefully, a user-friendly understanding of skillful effort. Stay out of trouble. If you get in trouble, know what to do. Develop good habits and keep them going. Okay? And so we're doing all of that with our, with our samadhi practice. So how to cultivate um, uh, samadhi through more proactive effort. So we know the main, the main uh, instruction is uh, just to keep coming back, stay with it, right? Stay with the breath. And in fact, the, in one of the uh, Tibetan systems of samadhi practice, the word, uh, I think in Tibetan, is translated as staying. So there's this emphasis on staying with the object, staying with the breath. So huge part of our effort, maybe certainly initially, is to notice when we're off the breath and come back. And that takes a certain amount of effort. It takes a certain amount of uh, showing up, being at the practice, knowing what we're doing, being committed to follow the instructions and so forth. And that's that's, of course, the central way that we uh, carry out this proactive effort. And so, in terms of vitaka, it means that we keep on aiming at the breath. We're off the breath, we notice it, we, again, try not to indulge in our distractions, we come back to the breath, 
we keep aiming at the breath when we're off. We keep establishing that contact. We keep uh, establishing vitaka. And then we try as much as we can to uh, stay with it, to have the vichara occurring, the, the, the staying with it. And so part of that is also being skillful with the hindrances, noticing, just noticing when they're there, knowing what to do with them. Um, the staying with it's particularly important in a retreat like this because there are ups and downs. There are times when we're just not with the program, right? <laughs> you know, again, it can be doubt or can be a uh, dull moment or we feel tired or we get the mid-afternoon blahs and that happens. And so one thing to know, and probably you've experienced this, is that sometimes that, first of all, the development of samadhi practice is mysterious. Have you seen that? It's mysterious. Try not to form narratives in which you think you know what's happening. <laughs> You've probably experienced at times just being very dull, very off, but you keep staying with it, and 15 minutes you're really clear. How many have experienced something like that? Okay, look around. Okay, that's very important information, right? And so, be careful again of conclusions made. My mind's like this now, it'll stay like this for the next hour. It's time for a cup of tea. <laughs> right? But really to stay with it because it's, it is mysterious and, the, and it's not linear. Right? So that, that's important. One instruction which I think hasn't been given, which has been quite helpful for me personally, is to work with the pause between the out-breath and the in-breath in a more conscious way. We're different in how the pauses between in-breath and out-breath are there for us, or between the out-breath and the in-breath. Generally, the pause between the in-breath and out-breath is uh, shorter than the pause between the out-breath and the in-breath. Are you following me? <laughs> but it's uh, somewhat personal, right? For some of us, the pause between the out-breath and the in-breath could be as much as almost a half a second or something like that. And guess what? Guess what happens during that pause? We contemplate lunch or dot, dot, dot. You know, you know the... And so... One technique which I work with and which has been quite helpful for me and a lot of people I've worked with is to have something like what we call a three-part breath and to be with the in-breath and sometimes it even, again, can be helpful as uh, Susie was saying to be, you know, to know this is the in-breath just very softly, the out-breath and then during the pause bring our attention to uh, typically somewhere in the body. I go to the whole body. So I'm with the in-breath. I actually follow the breath at the nostrils. I'm with the in-breath, the out-breath, and then I go to my whole body and I wait for the new in-breath to come. 
And I, then I, as soon as it comes, I go there. It's also, that's a very helpful technique if we have any tendencies to control the breath. Because we go to the pause and then we let the new in-breath come on its own. We don't have to help it along. Right? And so we, and we can say very quietly to ourselves, pause. So it's in, out. As soon as we feel the out-breath end, then be with the pause. We could also be with our hands, be with the contact with the uh, chair or cushion, and just stay there for a little while. Again, not all of you will have as long a pause, but, but many people find that technique helpful to really keep the continuity. Susie mentioned counting. That can be quite helpful. Uh, we've mentioned that the general guideline is that when thoughts come and go or different things come and go, we don't pay attention to them in the same way that we do with mindfulness. We don't label them, we just notice them, come back to the breath. That's the general instruction. The exception is when something comes that has very significant intensity and duration. You know, an example might be that, uh, I don't know, I have um, some unresolved grief, maybe from end of a relationship or a loss of some kind, and it's there in my being, and it comes up in a really strong way, and maybe last, it's just there, and I notice it, it's still there, it lasts for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, something like that. In that case, we could go to mindfulness practice. So it's that very significant intensity and duration. When that's not there, we just notice it and come back. And of course, when there is that intensity and duration, we can use our mindfulness practice and the other tools that we have for working with what comes up. Another aspect I think we haven't mentioned is what to do when there are strong physical sensations of an unpleasant nature, what we sometimes call pain. <laughs> And I've always uh, thought that uh, our relationship to pain in samadhi practice gives us a kind of a perk. Because the instruction that I've always heard that I work with is that when there's something like pain that takes you away from the breath, don't stay with the pain or the unpleasant as you might in insight practice. But if you really are having a hard time being with the breath because of pain, Stand up, shift your posture. Again, I think of it as a perk. Oh, I don't have to be with the unpleasant. Cool. Right? And so we can, uh, we can work with that. Again, stand up, move a little bit, so forth. I often, I, I sometimes like to sit for a longer time, and I might sit until there are strong sensations arising in my body, which take me away from the breath. And I would stand up for five minutes, ten minutes, sit back down, something like that. Maybe in a sitting, if I sit a little longer, I might uh, do that two or three times. Right? And so that's the way to, to way work with it. A few further tools with very active thoughts. Again, I think, uh, I don't know if Philip mentioned this or Susie, but uh, at a certain point in our practice, when we get repetitive thoughts that have been coming for the 33rd time, Anyone had some of those? There are a few ways to work with this skillful. Sometimes they're actually significant issues that are important for us to deal with. 
but not now. And one, one thing we can do that I, I like to sometimes suggest, you have a, a, a really significant unresolved issue about whatever, work, relationship, something like that, or something else, and it keeps coming up and you say, oh, I'm in an open place, I'm getting insights about my unresolved issue. But it's actually, if you follow it, of course, you won't develop in samadhi so well. And so one thing to do is to say, yes, this is important, but not now. But I will, maybe at the end of the retreat, the last morning after breakfast, when I'm still in a pretty clear space, I will come back and give 10 or 15 minutes of journaling or reflection to that issue. So we're acknowledging that it's important, but we're saying it's not conducive to my practice developing. And so we say, not now. And we may need to say that a lot. You know, it's a little bit like we sometimes use metaphor of training a puppy. No. So we can use language that works for us. No. Not now. No. And sometimes that's useful to say to oneself. I know sometimes in some of my uh, samadhi retreats, I know, you know, because, you know, most samadhi retreats are a little longer. You get, you know, they're on the sixth day, and my mind, find my mind just going to some habitual pattern. And I could say, you know, not now, but occasionally I use something more forceful. And I know sometimes in my own practice, I've, this just came kind of spontaneously, but I've, I summoned the energy of a tiger. And I would go, I would just sit there and I'd go, This is not a traditional technique. <laughs> and uh, somehow that summoned the energy and it worked. So I, didn't, I didn't do it out loud, so. <laughs> okay. So you can use, can use uh, tools like that. Maybe just a few more, a few more pointers in terms of active effort. Um, some of you have may, have may have noticed that we can actually be with the breath and actually pretty continuously have good vitaka and vichara, but you may notice sometimes that there are still background thoughts occurring. Anyone notice that? That there's sometimes background, you're kind of with it most of the time, but there's still background thoughts. There actually can be two phases in the deepening. One of them is the connecting and sustaining, and the other one is actually kind of a, like a... a a, a more deep connection with the object. One teacher I heard says, it's kind of like the difference between being with a partner, staying in the same house, you're there, you're staying, but not so connected. And the other, the uh, deeper kind of connection is like, you're madly in love, you're really interested, you're deeply intimate with the partner. So the first one, we're still there. We're with the breath, let's say, but not as intimate, not as connected. So there are ways that we can try to be a little more intimately connected with the breath. One way that I've heard from one of my teachers is during a sitting, maybe try a few times during a 45-minute sitting, maybe for two or three minutes at a time, really engage strongly with the breath. Really feel it, almost like put a little more energy directly into it. Do that a few times during the sitting, that will help the, not, us not only to be with the breath um, all the time, but uh, to be completely with it or more completely with it. So that's a technique. 
but just a few times, not to try that the whole time because that, that would be too, tend towards overexertion. So just a few times. Uh, sometimes it can be helpful to, to, to try out longer sittings. That's something I've worked with a lot. Some people work with it. If you feel comfortable and it's not too uh, much over-efforting, sometimes maybe, and you're, you're going well, you could stay and sit for part of the walking you know, and, and do that. Again, watch, you know, we'll come back to that question of the balance. So, ways of cultivating the relaxed effort or the, the other side of the effort. Um, one way is initially try to relax as much as possible in the body before the sitting. Maybe there's something, you, maybe a little bit of yoga. See if your body can be as relaxed as possible. This will help the relaxation of the mind. Watch for striving. Watch for that pushing, that wanting things to happen. It can manifest as a kind of tightness. And sometimes if we're too tight, we'll know it very clearly in the body. Sometimes there'll even be headaches. Has anyone felt sometimes a little bit of tension in the head from trying too hard? That, that's a good sign to, to pull back, to relax. And we can work with the intention at the beginning of a sitting you know, may I relax more? And just to do that continually. I know that's been important for, for my practice. There's a way in which we need to also just stay with the practice and let go of our imagined trajectory of how my practice will develop and get me results. There's a way that it's helpful to let go of results and just stay really fully with the practice. And this is hard, you know, I know for myself and a lot of us, I was, in my early years, I was a competitive meditator. I'm sure there are residues, <laughs> you know, and so I would, you know, I was, I was a young man in my 20s. I liked to stay up late. If I was staying up at midnight, sitting in the hall and there were one other person, I was going to stay until that person left. <laughs> no. I, I won't detail the whole story. It led to its own problems. But so, anyways, one of, one of the ways I think, one of, the, uh, one of what makes people come to this role of a teacher is that we know a great deal of the mistakes and errors from personal experience. And maybe we know that more than other people. <laughs> Something like that. We've, we know the accumulated ways to get it all, to, to be off. So, and um, in doing samadhi practice, you know, I can remember, I had a period of about 10 years when I did a lot of samadhi practice. And I know initially I was very concerned with results. And there was a certain tightness there. And predictably, I didn't get the results I wanted. And predictably, I suffered. This relates to the core teaching, which grasp and ye shall suffer. <laughs> and so um, later, actually it was very, very interesting. I mean, the psychology is a little bit, little bit weird, but I remember uh, going into a, um, 
one uh, samadhi retreat, I heard that some, uh, several teachers that I knew had been doing samadhi practice and had not had good progress. For whatever reason, that freed me up. I didn't have to compare people I deeply respected, didn't seem to be, you know, they had their challenges too. And I went, you know, after having in the past had those, that goal orientation and tightness around it, something in me just relaxed. So my, my sense is that for many of us, that conditioning to have results and be goal-oriented is very deep conditioning. I'm saying this now with the possibility that you may avoid some suffering, but my own experience is that many of us, you won't hear me and you'll have to suffer. <laughs> but you have, have some choice. <laughs> okay. So other ways of uh, having this relaxed quality, we can have a sense of softening, we can have a sense of allowing the breath resting with the breath. So some of these words may be key for you. Soften, relax, ease, allow, and so forth. Just even saying those at the beginning of a sitting can be very helpful. Another way is to really have a sense of freshness. Just let me be with the breath as if I'm with the breath for the first time. In a fresh way, it can bring a certain kind of pleasure. And the... the, the enjoyment of the breath can bring about uh, some of that sukha that Susie was talking about. Another way that has helped me to be more receptive and relaxed is, is particularly sometimes when it's not quite going like I want or I'm a little frustrated, I can really, in a way, uh, take refuge in the mystery of how practice develops and of how samadhi develops. And that's been very helpful for me just saying, I don't know what's going to happen at the beginning of a session. I don't know what's going to happen. This is mysterious. I'm just going to let it happen, whatever happens. I'm going to give myself to it. That can be very helpful. That's been very helpful for me many, many times to really, in a way, uh, welcome the mystery. Watch out when, when there's some development of samadhi that we don't get overly attached to pleasant concentrated states. Easier said than done. I'm saying this to you. It may help some, it may not. <laughs> right? That we, there's just something so compelling and if we have any tendencies to grasp, we will. But know that it actually, in the long run, it doesn't help and it's important to let go. Maybe a last thing I'll mention. One of the ways that we relax more fully is that as we deepen in samadhi practice, at times we can simply, we've done the proactive practice, we can let go of what I call the meditative doer. We let go of the doing. And again, we can have this with an intention. May I let go of the doing and just relax into it, when, especially when the uh, samadhi, when the vitaka and vichara are, are pretty established. We can just really let go and uh, you know, just say, I will let go of the doer. 
And again, the, the doer in our being is very, very deeply conditioned. This is actually can be a powerful practice. And eventually in samadhi practice, we let go of the doer entirely. And the samadhi becomes automatic. And we can almost sometimes see the deconstruction of the doer. So what does it look like when these get more balanced? And how, and how do we help that balance occur? Um, interestingly, uh, even though I think the main teaching of the Buddha on skillful effort was more of the proactive kind, there are a lot of places where there's an indication of that balance of pro, what I'm calling proactive effort and relaxation. One of them is in the very story of the Buddha's awakening. That he was at a point in his practice, he had been doing austerities, ascetic practices, where sometimes scarcely eating anything, you know, the mortification of the body, as it's sometimes called in ascetic practices. And at a certain point, he was, well, I think on a, a river, and a, a milkmaid, a gopi, came to him, and he, he probably wasn't looking too good, and offered him some porridge. And to take that would have been against the rules of his order, of his uh, fellow ascetics. Something in him took that, received the porridge from the milkmaid, and it was actually not very long after that that his awakening occurred. And I think of it as, you know, we could talk about it in different ways as the balancing of that uh, almost uh, hyper, uh, hyper doing of ascetics. Or I think their gender dimensions, again, it's almost like a hyper masculine form of practice. And he took nourishment, we might say, from the feminine. And that balancing, I think this is how I like to interpret that story, that balancing of the masculine and feminine help to open up to awakening, help to open up to something very profound. There's also, some of you probably know the uh, metaphor that's used a lot, that our practice is like tuning uh, a lute. And the Buddha gave instruction on, uh, on our practice, neither being too tight nor too loose, which is exactly the, what we're talking about, right? And he... Uh, here's what he said in that, in that particular discourse. Um, and he, he was referring to, to the uh, lute, to that musical instrument, to being neither too tight nor too loose for the proper sounding. And he said, in the same way, over-aroused persistence leads to restlessness. Overly slack persistence leads to laziness. Thus you should determine the right pitch for your persistence uh, attune the pitch of the faculties, and then take up the object of meditation. It's the same balance we're talking about. So he does, he does talk like that. So how to how to work with this? One way would be to ask ourselves, in terms of this balance, where am I most developed? Do I tend more towards the proactive effort? Is that what I'm pretty good at? Or am I better at Relaxation, you know, where, where do I find myself stronger? And if we find ourselves stronger in one, we can have the deliberate intention to cultivate the other. So if we're pretty good at the coming back, the staying, the doing, we can invite ourselves 
in the practice. Again, some of this is going to depend on where we are exactly in the development of the practice, because sometimes the doing, the staying is most crucial. But at a certain point, the relaxation becomes important too. And then we can say, we can, we can look out for how we are with that balance and ask ourselves at a given session, you know, where am I on that balance? What is called for right now? And then maybe set an intention. A lot of my sessions, my own practice, I would at the beginning say, let me relax more. Because the doing is kind of taken care of, right? I would say, let me relax. I would do that 15 times a day. And I found that uh, intentions, as I sometimes say, don't guarantee anything, but they help. <laughs> right? So intention, very important tool. So continually invite that uh, relaxation. Interestingly, there, you know, as been mentioned before, there's a kind of balance with the breath that the, the in-breath tends to be arousing. It actually is an arousing of the sympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic nervous system gets somewhat aroused with the in-breath. That's how, how it works. And guess what? The out-breath is connected with the parasympathetic nervous system, which relaxes us. And so sometimes people have trauma, sometimes it's actually they're continually aroused and they can't relax. So working with the out-breath would be a way to work with trauma, interestingly. It helps them to relax. Or I was thinking, uh, I was thinking of this uh, book. I, think, I don't know if we were talking about it, Amana, but there was, uh, is it, there was a, uh, a book later made into a film called Waiting to Exhale. And the whole story was about a group of four women, four African-American women, who were unable to uh, uh, exhale. They were holding their breath, waiting for Mr. Wright, waiting, waiting for the right partner. And the whole book with that title, Waiting to Exhale. And so for us, we can, if we, again, if we find ourselves more needing energy, we can pay a little more attention to the inhale, if we, and if we are needing to relax, a little more attention to the exhale, and it actually works physiologically. We can also uh, work with posture. It's interesting, the posture can also express this balance. You know, I like to think like the back straight. You know, we try to, you know, if you're sitting, especially in a chair, we encourage the back to be slightly arched uh, and actually have the back free, not against the back of the chair. And, you know, that's, sort of represents the act of doing. And it takes a certain amount of effort. And then the opening of the chest, the relaxation of the heart area, the chest, is more like the relaxed quality. So we could actually set our posture each time and remember that balance. It's interesting. So we can really work with that balance. Ultimately, there's a paradoxical aspect to it. It's like we want to develop in samadhi. And in order to develop in samadhi, we do our practice, but in a sense, we have to let go of that wanting. We let go of the wanting in order to get what we want. So it's paradoxical. And the ordinary mind doesn't like paradox too much, right? But the poetic mind or the, what, the, uh, the mind, 
that is uh, beyond the extremes, the mind of the middle way likes paradox. There's, I remember there was a line, I think, from Walt Whitman in his Leaves of Grass where he says, I contradict myself. Paradox is a kind of contradiction. I contradict myself. Very well, I contradict myself. The world is large. It contains multitudes. <laughs> so we can sometimes play with that sense of, of paradox. And ultimately, it points towards the paradoxical quality of what we might call effortless effort. That's where samadhi practice goes, towards the effort being, um, having a high level of energy, but not a sense of doing. And we probably have tastes of that. We have tastes of that in other activities as well, probably where we're, we're doing, like I'm, uh, I was a competitive swimmer. And when you practice a lot, the level of energy is high, but it doesn't feel like exertion, right? You're just doing it. And I think probably a lot of us have that in a lot of parts of our lives, in some places where we're very familiar, you know, we're doing something at a high level, but it doesn't feel like work, or it doesn't feel like exertion. And samadhi practice becomes like that. So to close, uh, to remember really that we cultivate samadhi because it gives us stability of mind, which ultimately helps us see clearly, which helps um, liberate us from our confusion, delusion, and ignorance. And that without that samadhi, it's way harder to see into those qualities. So it's a very crucial aspect of things. The Buddha, practitioners develop Samadhi. A practitioner who, is, who has samadhi understands things as they really are. I think we'll be talking about that later. He's particularly meaning that we're able to see more clearly impermanence. We're able to see more clearly uh, dukkha or reactivity, sometimes translated as suffering. And we're able to see more the nature of the self with that samadhi. And yet samadhi is not the end of things. Another, another passage from the Buddha. This spiritual life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of moral discipline for its benefit, or the development of samadhi for its benefit. So he's basically saying this is not where we're going, ultimately. Or knowledge and vision for its benefit, but it is the unshakable liberation of mind that is the goal of the spiritual life, its heart would and its end. Without samadhi, we don't get there, but it's not the end, it's a means to an end. And then I'll just close with a, a poem. Uh, this is a poem that uh, I wrote. I hope that's okay form. <laughs> get my own poem. But uh, this is a poem that I wrote at the uh, end of a period of samadhi practice. Okay. This ancient vocation of simplicity. Purity of heart is to will one thing, said Kierkegaard. The breath opens the doors to outer life and to inner light where we may for a time reside 
in silence, stillness, and brilliant space, and be brought, refined, renewed, revived, revisioned, back to the next sounds, steps, and sights of this journey home. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. So thank you again for your practice and for your listening. We'll have a uh, walking period. Of course, you're welcome to stay in for a bit. And we'll come back at nine. We, again, we begin with chanting and we have then uh, a session uh, to continue our practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.